The title of this morning's talk is To Be With Life. Strange, isn't it? Weird title. I mean, I invite you to come here to drop your daily life. And what do I do then? Give your whole talk on how to be with life. You could have just continued to be with daily life as you were and be with it, no? No. Absolutely not. Because being with life is not so simple. In fact, our lives have been meticulously choreographed to make sure that we stay clear from the reality of things. Check it out. We make sure that in our daily life, regular, ordinary life, we stick to the make-believe script that we have assigned to ourselves at work, in our love life, in our with our family, in in whichever context. This practice aims at putting an end to make believe life. And instead make sure that we come face to face with things as they really are. Let's take a look at all of that. Starting with our make-believe life. A poignant illustration of the extravagant observance of make-believe life is uh, provided by the early life of a guy called Siddhartha Gautama, the Indian prince who was to become the Buddha later in his life. Siddhartha's father, the monarch of a small kingdom in northern India or Nepal, boundaries changed there, wanted Siddhartha to eventually become his successor. And so he started training him for that role. And to train him for that role, he surrounded Siddhartha with all the earthly delights. As eventually when Siddhartha became the Buddha and he reported this in the scriptures in his early life as a prince Siddhartha lived in three palaces one for the cold season one for the warm season and another one for the rainy season During the four months of the rainy season, 
he was entertained by female musicians and performer, performers without a single man around among them. Yep. You see the implications of that, obviously. <laughs> A sunshade was held over him day and night to protect him from cold, heat, dust, dirt, and dew. And this is a near quote from him. In short, he lived embedded in pleasures and sheltered from the unruliness of life, from the reality of things, really. Today, the situation in which Prince Siddhartha found himself is replicated by the lives of many of the super-rich in this world. And for the rest of us, for whom the actual truly luxurious, luxurious life is beyond reach. We nevertheless manage to create some simulation of it, don't we? Even a virtual simulation of it by going to the web or any other form of make-believe construction at times in our imagination. Although today, one favorite way of going that way is to go to the web. Um, long before the invention of the web, of the virtual electronic world, we've been doing so by simply talking to ourselves. Creating and maintaining a make-believe world by means of this internal conversation. What the Buddha in, in Pali, his language, used to call papancha, by the proliferation of thought. Just, just check it out. Listen Next time you feel, feel engaged in such an inner monologue. It could be about anything. This is, of course, a situation that's illustrated amply in world literature. Let me just offer you one example of that which is, I think, quite fitting because it uh, offers a, a blatant contrast with what Armand Donelian yesterday was inviting us to do, to, namely, improvisation. <coughs> In this play, Glass Menagerie by Tennessee William, the main character, Amanda, Every day, she wakes up her teenage children by reciting to them, Rise and shine, rise and shine, etc. Goes on and on. In the hope 
that they, and, and it, she succeeds actually. The kids, leading miserable lives by the way, but every moment they say to themselves, rise and shine, rise and shine, to cover up the misery. See, no improvisation there. It's all pre-choreographed. Okay. So that happens. But in the end, this make-believe world is unsustainable. Most of us only realize that when it comes crashing down collapses. Others may be able, may be fortunate enough to get a clear notice of the unsustainability of this world before it's too late. How do we get notice of this unsustainability? One way is through what the Buddha called the heavenly messengers. When the Buddha was still Prince Siddhartha, immersed in the delight of life in his palaces, as I just described, he began to sense that something wasn't right there, you know. There's too much that... Um, that the realities of life were really being kept from him. So one day, he decided to explore what life was like outside his palaces. Because his father, the king, found out about that, and he ordered in the, along the route that his charioteer was going to take uh, Siddhartha, he made sure that everything was nice and clean along that route, that uh, he painted things over, covered them up, uh, he placed flowers and incense along the road, and of course all the beggars, which are very common in India, were put out of sight. However, as Siddhartha went through the city in his chariot, four celestial beings conspired to bring Siddhartha face to face with the realities. Those celestial beings are known as the heavenly messengers. The first messenger showed up in the form of an old and frail person, ravaged by age. This surprised Siddhartha very much. He asked the charioteer. Charioteer explained. He hadn't seen any such person. They were kept out of sight. I mean, he didn't know about old age. Many of us <laughs> try to ignore <laughs> that too, you know. <laughs> the second messenger 
showed up as a seriously ill person. Once again, there were no ill persons surrounding Siddhartha in any of his palaces. And yet in this case, the severity of the symptoms of the illness were very manifest. Made deliberately so by, by the heavenly messenger. And the third heavenly messenger showed up as a corpse on display by the road, by the side of the road. This, by the way, it's a very happen, ha, common uh, site in India where often enough relatives of a deceased will park him or her on, by the road and put a bowl there to collect uh, uh, donations to bury him properly or her. So after finding out from the charioteer what was going on, Siddhartha came to realize that even him, protected as he was in his palaces, could not avoid the eventual ravages of old age, sickness, and death. And death. In other words, that impermanence cannot be avoided, even in his protected situation. And then the last and fourth of the heavenly messengers appeared in the form of a wandering monk, a sadhu, as they called them in India. And the charioteer explained the prince that a sadhu was somebody who had renounced the world in order to seek enlightenment. Wow. Siddhartha thought. And then and there he decided to abandon, abandon his life of luxury and become a renunciate himself. Of course the heavenly messengers are, are not just the stuff of history and legend. In the course of our lives, they really do present themselves to us in different guises. And it's up to us to recognize them and listen to the message. My own heavenly messenger, as many of you know, was Raquel. When in the late 70s, she decided to drop me, leave me. We've been married for 23 years, had three children. In doing so, she confronted me face to face with the fictions that had replaced the realities of our life together. 
And now, three and a half decades later, we are together again, but our relationship is quite different. It's based in the real. Doesn't mean that we never disagree with each other, confront each other, say nasty things to each other, but, but, but there's no truth to all that. The truth is in, in having come to things as they are. Of course, you know, it didn't have to end up this way. It could have ended up with different partners and so on, sure. Another story, and very powerful one, is the story of the Tibetan teacher called Pema Chodron. Pema Chodron's messenger was her ex-husband. She's now an American Buddhist nun, one of the foremost students of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, of the late Chogyam Trungpa. And this is what she writes in her book, entitled, When Things Fall Apart. I'll take excerpts. The only time we ever know what's really going on is when the rug's been pulled out and we can't find anywhere to land. We use these situations either to wake ourselves up or to put ourselves to sleep. I remember so vividly a day in early spring when my whole reality gave out on me. Although it was I, I had heard anything about Buddhist teachings, it was what could be called as a genuine spiritual experience. <coughs> it happened when my husband told me he was having an affair. We lived in northern New Mexico. I was standing in front of a adobe house drinking a cup of tea. I heard the car drive up and the door of the car bang shut. Then he walked around the corner and without warning he told me that he was having an affair and he wanted a divorce. I remember the sky and how huge it was. I remember the sound of the river and the steam rising up from my tea. There was no time, no thought, there was nothing. Just a light and profound, limitless stillness. And then I regrouped and picked up stone and threw it at him. <laughs> Mm -hmm. 
When anyone asks me how I got involved in Buddhism, I always say that was because I was so angry with my husband. Same here, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) The truth is that he saved my life. When that marriage fell apart, I tried hard. Very, very hard to get back to some kind of comfort, some kind of security, some kind of familiar resting place. Fortunately for me, (laughs) that's what Tema says, but I, I can hear me saying the same thing too. Fortunately for me, I could never pull it off. Instinctively, I knew that annihilation of my old, dependent, clinging self was the only way to go. That's when I pinned this sign up on my wall. And here's the sign transcribed. Let me read it and then... Only to the extent that we expose ourselves over and over to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found in us. Let me see, maybe. And here's one more story. It concerns our friend Armin, who gave a Dharma talk, mini Dharma talk, Yesterday, I'm sitting here. He wrote a book, and he sent me a copy, by the way, thanks for it, <laughs> entitled Whole Notes, in which he reca- recalls a series of painful events in his life during the 90s. By the way, the book is about many other things, but there's a section on this. And this painful Events and these painful events include serious self inflicted injury to his hand, the death of his father, and a bitter divorce. And he writes. These experiences cracked open my ego and, though painful, opened me to profound and beneficial changes in my life. And he adds that thanks to the discovery of meditation, quote, my long-standing beliefs in individual accomplishment, stoic self-reliance, goal-oriented action, an ascetic 
idealism began to change. Thank you. <laughs> In sum, what the heavenly messengers say to us time and time again is that all is impermanent. Health is impermanent. Identity props are impermanent. Relationships are impermanent. Life itself is impermanent. If and only when, if and when, we are ready to let this, this teaching in, then and only then can we be truly present with our own life. If we can't let it in, then we are doomed to live a fictional life. And this fiction is bound to come to a crashing end sooner or later. In this uh, final section of this talk, I'll explore ways in which we may cultivate specifically the perception of impermanence. Clearly, this is the central point. To be with life, we must also be willing to be with death whenever it comes. The Buddha emphasized in, his, in the scriptures how essential it is to cultivate this perception of impermanence in order to move along the path to liberation. And he says, very briefly, and I quote, Monks, when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, it eliminates all sensory lust. I could say all sensory clinging. It eliminates all lust for existence, all clinging to existence. It eliminates all ignorance. It uproots all conceit of I am. So it's, it's very significant perception. And, of course, we know that. That's what uh, Pema Chodron meant when she pinned that sign to the, on his, her wall, which was meant to be a, a message to herself. Well, you can just put it there. 
strong words, but right on target. For me, anyway. One of the most distressing encounters with impermanence for many of us, particularly as we age, is the loss of memory. The drainage of the mind, really, with age. A, a man called Hobb, that's his nickname, I think, who was a teacher at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center in Massachusetts, reported how he experienced the Alzheimer condition creeping in on him. And here's uh, some quotes. He says, they're all there. Sorry, they're all here the perceptions, ideas, and inspirations. They come in as before, but now they are more fleeting. They are here vivid, ready to express, but like a prairie dog, certainly they disappear down the hole and they are gone. This is what it's like now. Fleeting experiences of mind. Now it's here. Now it's gone. And by the way, somewhere else in this uh, uh, article, which is on the Mountain Record, the Zen Center publication, and is uh, authored by his wife, who talks about him, but what I'm giving you now are quotes from him. But uh, his wife tells that at one point, Hobb was uh, supposed to give a talk at uh, Cambridge Meditation Center. He went to the podium and he couldn't say a word. So I'm, that's an interesting prospect for myself, too. Don't be too shocked. It's bound to happen, unless, of course, I recognize it beforehand. And You don't have to have Alzheimer's. Just don't give it a description, medical description. It's just old age, you know. Here's another quote from Hobb. When I've woken up the last few days, there's been no one home. The blackboard is erased. You are supposed to be able to pick up where you left off, to remember something, but there is nothing. You wake up and you don't know where you are going today or what you are supposed to be doing. It's very unsettling. I want to be able to teach, to remember enough to do that. But I can't remember the ideas I had yesterday. All a race. It feels like a defeat. Of course, understandable, totally understandable. But there again, it's absolutely possible and it's implicit in that article. 
just to make peace with that. After all, you're going to end sooner or later unless you're going to commit suicide. There's going to be a period of change, of impermanence, where you can, you're there to witness impermanence. After you die, you don't witness it anymore. But before you witness, and by golly, it's a gift. I assure you, it's a gift. It, it brings some difficulties in life, sure. But to allow for impermanence to be. Of course, in, in, in the process of forgetting things, it's not that we demand that we remember everything. We surely allow, we're used to make room for some degree of forgetfulness. For instance, many of us, and me included, forget most of our dreams, if not all <coughs> of our dreams. I, 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 last night I dreamt uh, quite intensively, but uh, at this moment I can't remember it. A little earlier I did remember some. But we don't make a problem out of that because that's sort of a bit of forgetfulness. What bothers us, what tends to bother us, the changes in those patterns, the exacerbation of those patterns because they reveal the impermanence of our mind. As Pema Chodron says in another quote that I'm very fond of, she says, life sometimes seems like a turbulent river threatening to drown us and destroy the world. A turbulent river. Which reminds me of a visit I paid some a dozen years ago or so to a terminal patient when I was a hospice volunteer. Nowadays I don't have to go <laughs> to volunteer to visit others. I can visit myself, you know. <laughs> and, and, and be at peace with that. Of course. I'm not trying to paint a dire picture of, of my mind of course but we all have these moments we call them senior moments right <laughs> now this guy who was uh, in his last days he was a Spanish speaker native Spanish speaker so and he had forgotten his English so he was in his 60s not too old had some mental condition and um, and so they asked me to come and visit him. And he, and I was a witness to a very impressive monologue of his. He really wanted to communicate what was going on in his mind. He didn't want to hear anything, nor was he ready to hear anything. But 
But I listen to it, and I, I, I wish I could remember his actual words. I don't. But his experience was one of being swept away by a turbulent river. You can call it the stream of life. Trying to hold on to stuff on the shore and not being able to hold on to anything. Being carried away. His language was at times incoherent, turbulent as a stream. What stayed with me mostly is the profound impact his words had on me. I, I could not identify with him, but recognize that turbulence. Before I could visit him again, he was gone. <coughs> Down the efflux of the turbulent river. In some then, the challenge is to be with the turbulent river of life. Sorry, with the river of life, both in its calm, doesn't have to be turbulent, of course. I mean, right here, I'm sure many of you have experienced <coughs> calm and tranquility. Not necessarily, of course, sometimes that space that we create allows other turbulence to come up. Whatever we are with, calm or turbulence. And to flow in that river, with that river, until it cats, cascades down and becomes one with the vastness of the sea. Because these things are better said by a poet. And so I, I went to my favorite poet, which some of you may know is Don Pablo Neruda, a Chilean, the late Pablo Neruda, a Chilean Nobel Prize poet. And um, <coughs> let me share with you the last. Uh, section of a long poem called Autumn Testament in English translation of course he says from having been born so often I have a salty experience like creatures of the sea with a passion for stars an unearthly destination. And so, I move without knowing to which world I'll be returning or if I'll go on living. While things are settling down, here I've left, left my testament, my shifting extravagaria. So, whoever comes, goes on reading it, will take in anything 
except the constant moving of a clear and bewildered man. A man rainy and happy, lively and autumn-minded. And now I'm going behind this page, this page, but not disappearing. I'll dive into clear air like a swimmer in the sky and then get back to growing till one day I'm so small that the wind will take me away and I won't know my own name and I will not be when I wake up. Then I will sing in silence. So let us sit in silence. Sing in silence if you wish for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.